Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Thank you for braving the blizzard. I see a tiny bit of snow outside, so I think we're going to survive. Um, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and if you would read along with me, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil, evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You would pray with me. Dear Father, God, Lord, this is the inspired word of God. This is your words to us, Lord, authoritative. God, I pray as we go through this passage, Lord, that we not only realize that there is a spiritual reality outside of this physical world, a spiritual reality, Lord, that is at war right now, that we as Christians are at war, Lord, and we need the armor of God. We need to put on the armor of God, Lord. God, as we talk about righteousness and the gospel of peace, Lord, I pray that we, we put on the breastplate of righteousness, not only being hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord, and we find our rest in the gospel of peace, Lord, that we are at peace with you, not because of our works, not because we are good within ourselves, but because of the work of Christ on the cross. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we go over this important passage in your son's name. Amen. We're continuing our series on the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Last week, we covered just the belt of truth and really spent a lot of time on an ideology, really a false ideology, I believe, what is becoming a false religion of critical theory, sometimes called applied postmodernism or the social justice movement. We're going to take more time to talk about this in the future, but today I really wanted to, to focus on truth. Right? Part of my calling, as I said last week, is to reveal lies, to call out false teachings and false ideologies, and so we spent a lot of time on that. And I just want to be honest, as a pastor, I, I don't love doing that. That's not my favorite thing to do from the pulpit especially, I like to preach truth. I like to, to expose and uh, um, exegete passages and, and dive in uh, to the truth, God's word. And so today I really wanted to focus on the armor of God. We'll return to this false ideology and talk about that a little bit more later. But today I really wanted to focus on the idea of righteousness. Righteousness. And there's three points I have for the sermon this morning. The first point is this, the breastplate of righteousness. The second point is the three categories of righteousness. And the third point is the gospel that brings peace. So let's start with the first point this morning, the breastplate of righteousness. If you would look at verse 14 again, it says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness course, just like the belt, the breastplate is an extremely important piece of equipment for a soldier, especially in hand-to-hand combat. Roman soldiers would have breastplates that were made out of leather and metal that would cover their chest, that really protected vital organs, the heart, the lungs. Extremely important piece of equipment. For spiritual warfare, Paul relates this idea of a breastplate righteousness. You need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, again, just like truth, remember God is truth. God is 
righteous. He is the standard of righteousness. If you want to know what righteousness is, you need to look at the character and nature of God. Matthew 6.33 says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Psalms 11, verse 7, it says, For the Lord, that's Yahweh, is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 4.22, it says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and, be, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God is righteous, so his likeness is righteousness and holiness. First John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you, you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I can keep on going. I looked this up, and there's passage after passage after passage. The Bible is clear that God is righteous. God's nature is righteousness. You want to know what righteousness is, you just have to look at the nature of God. And just like truth, if you reject God, you're rejecting righteousness. In fact, if you think about Romans 1.18, which we went over last week, if you suppress the truth, you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness and, and suppression of truth go hand in hand. Righteousness and the desire to seek truth go hand in hand. Since God is righteous, his words are righteous. His laws, his commands are righteous. Isaiah forty-five nineteen. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. What is righteous. Deuteronomy 4, 8. And what great nation is there that has statues and rules so righteous as all of this law that I set before you today? In other words, God's law that he gave to Israel, God's law is righteous. Psalms 19. 119, 172, my tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. They are righteous. And I could just keep on going. In fact, if you just read Psalms 119, it's the longest chapter in all of Scripture. I encourage you to do that this afternoon. Just read through Psalms 119, and you'll see that God's words, His commands, His testimony, His precepts, the things that God says are righteous, because God Himself is righteous. God's commands are righteous because he is righteous. And he commands what agrees with his righteous nature. In fact, we've talked about this. Leviticus 20, 26 says, You shall be holy. This is the law, again, given to Israel. You shall be holy. That's the command. Why? For I, the Lord, am holy. That's the nature of God. You can reverse that, as I have in the past, and say, I am holy, therefore, because my nature is holiness, therefore you shall be holy. That's the command. His laws, in other words, aren't arbitrary. They reflect his character and who he is. So righteousness is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Which, interesting, that's the same exact definition I gave to truth last week. Truth and righteousness is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. And if I can put it in the most simplistic way, righteousness is simply valuing what is right. Valuing what is right. It is, it is loving God. Righteousness is loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. It's valuing, having value of what is right. That is the breastplate of righteousness. That is what righteousness is. Now I want to look at three categories of righteousness. Three categories of righteousness is the second point. We're going to spend most of our time here this morning. Three categories of righteousness. So what does it mean to put on 
the breastplate of righteousness. Now that we know what righteousness is, what does it mean to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, there's three categories we see in Scripture when it comes to righteousness. The first category is self-righteousness. The second category is imputed righteousness. And the third category is righteous living. So let's start with self-righteousness. And before we talk about this at all, I just want to say this is not true righteousness. Self-righteousness is not righteousness. It's a counterfeit. It's an imposter. It's a fake. It's a sin. In fact, it's one of the worst, if not the worst type of sin. Jesus saved his harshest criticism for the self-righteous, the Pharisees. It's self-worship. It's self-worship disguised as righteousness. It's self-worship disguised as godly worship, as God worship. It's evil disguised as good. It's deception. In fact, self-righteous people, it's, such, it's so deceptive, self-righteous people rarely realize that they are self-righteous. Yet usually everyone around them sees it. I have a friend that always says, it's like bad breath. You don't realize you have it most of the time, but everyone else knows you have it. Everyone can see a self-righteous person, yet it's deceptive, and self-righteous people rarely know that they are self-righteous. But listen to what Jesus has to say about self-righteous people, the self-righteous Pharisee. Matthew, Pharisees, Matthew twenty-three fifteen says this, Woe to you! For us, that doesn't sound that big of a deal, that phrase, woe to you, but that word woe is a word of wrath. Jesus is declaring wrath and justice toward the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisee, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That's, that's hard words right there. Twice the son of Satan. Twice the worshiper of Satan than yourselves. It's evil. Self-righteousness is evil disguised as good. Right? And that follows Satan's pattern. We've been talking about the enemy, Satan. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? He disguises himself as righteous, but he's not. He's evil. It's a lie. Self-righteousness is fake righteousness. It's not righteousness. I really want to hear this this morning. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. I think the clearest explanation of self-righteousness is in a parable that Jesus spoke. Found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Again, Jesus saved his harshest criticism for the self-righteous. Luke 18, verse 9. says this, he, this is Jesus, he also, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. It's Pharisees. If they trusted in themselves, the word trusted is patho in Greek. It's to believe in something or someone to the extent of placing trust in or reliance on. Right? It's to rely on, to trust in, to depend on, to have confidence in, to have faith in. They trusted in themselves. They had faith in themselves, in other words. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The faith that they had was in themselves for their righteousness. It was not faith in God. They trusted in themselves for their righteousness. They looked in themselves for their righteousness. Their righteousness came from self. It's self righteousness. Look at verse 9, and they treated others with contempt. Right? Contempt for others is a fruit of self-righteousness. It's a sign of self-righteousness. In fact, it's necessary for self-righteousness because if you compare yourself to, to God or his law, you're going to be unrighteous. The only way you can fool yourself into thinking you're righteous is by looking at people that you think are less righteous than you. And so a fruit of self-righteousness is contempt for others. And I just want to say this right now. Self-righteous people don't realize they're self-righteous. One of the signs that you may be self-righteous is if you have contempt for others. And I would ask you to examine your heart. Do you have contempt for others? Because the fruit of self-righteousness is contempt for others. Love, on the other hand, 
It's a fruit of godly righteousness. Patience for others. Kindness towards others. Believing the best in others. Covering up other people's sins in love. In other words, not dwelling in on it. Not getting bitter about sins. Contempt for others is a fruit of self-righteousness. So let's listen to this parable. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. Let me just stop there. That's fake worship. The Pharisee realizes that he's supposed to be thanking God. He realizes he's supposed to be worshiping God, but it's fake, because look who he's really thanking. I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There's contempt. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I give. All the focus is not on God. The focus is on Him. His good works. Look at my good works, God. Look how good I am. Look how gracious I am. I give. Look at me. What He really is saying, God, you should be thanking me, Right? God, you're lucky you have me on your team. Look at all my good works. That's self-righteousness. It's ugly. So what is self-righteousness? Again, I want to try to get these concepts as simple as possible. Self-righteousness is obedience. It's obedience without two things. It's obedience without worship of God or love of God. Instead, it's obedience in self-worship self-glorification. It's obedience to glorify self. So the first thing, it's obedience without worship of God. Secondly, it's obedience without faith in God. Right? It's faith in self. Verse 9 makes that clear. Some who trusted, who had faith in themselves, that they were righteous. Now I want you to think about that for a second, because how many times have you heard in our culture that you need to just believe in yourself? You need to just have faith in yourself. The Bible says we need to have faith, but not faith in self, faith in God. In fact, that's where our worth comes from, is our relationship with God, not self. Romans 1.17 says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's faith in God, not self. Which leads to the second category of righteousness. And this is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. This is true righteousness. It's true righteousness because it's righteousness that comes from God, not self. Philippians 3.9 says this, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, a self-righteousness. That comes from the law, that's works, from doing good things. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. This righteousness has to do with justification, imputed righteousness. Our standing with God. At the moment of our salvation, when we put faith in Jesus, Jesus' righteousness, which is true righteousness, it's God's righteousness, was imputed into us, those that are saved. It's a foreign righteousness, theologians call it. Some theologians call it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's outside of us. It's foreign to us. It's not because of our good works. It's because of the works that Jesus has done. That's why it was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life. To be righteous. So that life can be credited to us. Isaiah 61, 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt, it, or exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Think about that. Adam and Eve sinned, right? Mankind sinned. And what was the first thing they realized? They were naked. They're exposed. They're sinners. They're guilty. Not the feeling of guilty. True guiltiness. And in this passage, it says there's a robe of righteousness that covers their nakedness. It's a, it's a robe of righteousness that's not our robe. It's a foreign righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness that covers our nakedness. It's 
imputed righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he, this is Abraham, believed the Lord and he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham within himself wasn't righteous. In fact, he was unrighteous. But he had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness, a foreign righteousness outside of him. It was given to him. Listen, when we believe in Jesus, Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. When we put our faith in Christ, our sins are imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness, his perfect life, his righteousness is imputed to us. Theologians call this double imputation. In other words, God treats Jesus as if he lived our life, death on the cross, what we deserved. And then he treats us as if we lived his life, if we lived as if we lived perfectly, righteously. You know what? That's good news. That's good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's double imputation. Pastor Andy, a few weeks ago when we did baptisms out back, called it the great exchange. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Last week we talked about Romans 1. We said that word exchange is used over and over and over again in Romans 1. We, mankind, in our sinfulness, exchange the glory of God for images, for earthly things. We exchange the truth for a lie. Well, for believers, God made an exchange too. He exchanged Jesus' righteousness for the penalty of sin we deserve. He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, that's only for those who have faith. Just a side note. If you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and you don't know who Jesus is, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you haven't trusted in Jesus, listen, your works aren't good enough. You can't say, I'm going to make it because I'm a good person or God is happy with me. He's not. You need your sins to be forgiven. You need imputed righteousness that's outside of you because you have no righteousness in you. You need the great exchange, our penalty, placed on Jesus' back, his death on the cross so we can be forgiven, exchanged for Jesus' righteousness so we can stand with confidence front of the throne of grace. Put your faith in Jesus. Ian Duggid wrote this, the great, or this exchange deal is particularly good news to those of us who know that our goodness isn't nearly good enough. Some may fool themselves that God ought to be rather pleased with their righteousness. They think that they are doing quite nicely in obeying God and keeping his law. But others know the truth. We are miserable failures in our efforts to be good. We have not done what we ought or uh, said what we ought or thought what we ought. As we look back over today, yesterday, and last week, we lose count of the multiple times we have failed God through lust, pride, selfishness, lies, covening, and so on. We need forgiveness of sins. We need the righteousness that's outside of us. It only comes from God, a foreign righteousness, Christ's righteousness to cover us. Turn back to Luke 18, verse 9. We only read half the parable. I want to see the other half of the parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It should be on the screen up here to follow along. It says this in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, uh, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes 
of all that I give. Again, this is self-righteousness, self-worship. He's trusting in himself. All the glory goes to himself. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, is not even worthy to be near God. Would not even lift up his eyes towards heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. Listen, that's the attitude that leads to salvation. When you lose faith in yourself and your own good works and you seek mercy and grace from God as your only hope, that's the road to salvation. Look at verse 14 again. It says this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. It's another way of saying saved. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself, for everyone that says, I'm a good person, will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, the one that realizes he's a sinner and he needs God's righteousness, he needs forgiveness of sins, will be exalted. Self-righteousness is not righteousness. Imputed righteousness is true righteousness because it's God's righteousness imputed, accredited to our account. And this all happens through faith. faith. Romans 1, 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for, uh, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the first category of righteousness is self-righteousness, which is not righteousness. It's, it's a fraud. The second category of righteousness is imputed righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness accredited to our account, imputed to us. It's foreign righteousness, not righteousness that comes from within. There's a third type of righteousness, and this is practical righteousness or lived out righteousness righteousness lived out listen if you are saved you are called to pursue righteousness by god second timothy 2:22 says this so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness paul is telling timothy to pursue righteousness 1 Timothy 4, 6 says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with um, irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The word train is jumazo. It means to, to control oneself by by thorough discipline. It means to discipline oneself. The Greek gym, word gymazo actually is the word we get gymnasium from. You go to the gym to work out, to discipline yourself. It's a, related to sports in the, in the Greek um, understanding of this word. It's how athletes train themselves. We're called to train ourselves as Christians. Spiritually, we're called to train ourselves for godliness. Which, again, that's another word of righteousness. Godliness is righteousness. We should work hard, in other words, to live a righteous life. At salvation, you are justified. You're saved from the penalty of sin. After salvation, you start the sanctification process where we become more and more like Christ. After salvation, we're called to pursue righteous living, to train ourselves for godliness. And I believe this is what Paul is is telling us to do when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. John MacArthur writes, to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to live in daily, moment-by-moment obedience to our Heavenly Father. This is part of God's armor in holy living, for which God supplies the standard and the power, but for, for which we must supply the willingness. God himself puts on, on our imputed righteousness— but we must put on our practical righteousness. We must put on righteous living. In fact, turn back to Ephesians 6, verse 14. Ephesians 6, verse 14. The command starts off by saying, stand, right? Be strong in the Lord. And one of the ways we're strong in the Lord is standing by putting on the armor of God. Stand, therefore, verse 14. Stand, therefore, having... Fasten on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on, in Greek, 
is in the middle voice. It just means there's a special relation between the person and the verb, or the subject and the verb, suggesting the believer's responsibility to put on. We're called to put on the breastplate of righteousness. One of the ways we stand firm in spiritual warfare is by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And how do we do that? By pursuing righteousness, the spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, studying scripture, praying, worshiping, evangelizing, serving, fasting, the means of grace, right? the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, obedience in those two things, like hearing God's word preached and and, and read and sung, corporate worship, being together as a body and worshiping together, fellowship, accountability. But if I can put this just as simply as possible again, right, what, is, what is pursuing righteousness? What is putting on the breastplate of righteousness? It's, it's simply this. Read God's word and do it. Obey it. Be doers, not just hearers. This is where the breastplate of righteousness is connected to the belt of truth. When you think about it, right, the Roman soldier, the belt, we said, is probably the most important equipment because it keeps all the other pieces of armor together. Right? It holds everything together. But what if a, a, a soldier went to, to battle against swords with just his belt and not the breastplate on? It's foolish. If the belt keeps the armor in place, but you need the armor, you need the breastplate. We need both the belt and the breastplate. We need to read and know God's word, know truth, and do it. Turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in, intensely, in, or intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We need this. You know, I've been around Reformed theology enough that I realize there are many who just love Reformed theology, many who love deep theology. They get stuck in this trap. They love theology and doctrine. They love truth, but then they don't practice it. They're not loving. They're not patient with others. They're not kind. They don't evangelize. They don't serve or get involved in the church. They're super critical of everything, yet they're not willing to get involved in anything. And if you think I'm talking about you, I am thinking of a certain person in here this morning. It's me. I struggle with this. I love truth. I love doctrine. I love philosophy. Sometimes I'm tempted just to be a hearer of God's word and not a doer. I can be super critical of others without getting involved in, in what's going on or getting involved in that person's life. Let's not be a church of hearers only. Let's be doers. Love others. Get involved. Serve to the glory of God. Three types of righteousness. Self-righteousness, which is not righteousness. 
There's imputed righteousness, which is pure righteousness. It's, it happens out salvation. It happens to us. God is the one that's acting. He's the one that, that works, not us. It's, it's imputed to us. It's a foreign righteousness. It doesn't come from self. And there's practical rightness, righteousness. There's lived out righteousness. Let me be clear. It's not salvific. It's not for salvation. Your good deeds will not save you. It's evidence of salvation. It's fruit of salvation. Which leads us to our third point. The peace found in the gospel. Peace found in the gospel. Now, when it comes to righteousness, there's three lies of Satan. And I know there's probably way more lies from Satan or many variations of these three lies. But there's three main lies that you see throughout the history of the church. That's from Satan. Our enemy will attack with these lies. This is his schemes. This is how he's going to attack. The first lie is this. And the first two actually lead to legalism. But the first lie is this. God loves you because of your good works. It's a lie. It's self-righteousness. Again, that's not righteousness. It's prideful. To say, God loves me because of my good works. And listen. Many, 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 many people have fallen to this lie. Inside the church and out. In fact, if you ask the average person if they think they're going to heaven, they'll say yes. And the average answer you'll get, if you ask why, they'll say, because I'm a good person. It's a lie. Self-righteousness. It's taking the glory of God and looking at self. And this lie keeps people away from the truth. They think that they're in right standing with God when they're not. Because they think they're a good person. It's self-righteousness. It's self-worship. It's a fraud. The second lie of Satan is very similar. It's very similar. And it is very self-focused. Again, even though it may disguise itself and not look self-focused, but it's this. God doesn't love me because I have failed. God doesn't love me because I have failed. Let me be clear. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have failed. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the penalty of that sin is death. Put your faith in Christ. It's your only hope. That your sins are forgiven, and you get an imputed righteousness that's not of your own. But if you are a Christian, this is still a lie. The truth is God loves you, and this love does not depend on your good works. God loves you despite your failures. This is where the gospel of peace comes in. Look at verse 14 again. It says this, Stand therefore, this is how we stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, being hearers of God's word, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, being doers of God's word. And look at verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When we fail, and we will as Christians, we find our rest in the truth that our standing with God does not depend on our works, but instead our standing with God rests purely on the love of God and the finishing and toning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the gospel of peace. We are at peace with God. Before salvation, we were enemies of God. After salvation, we are at peace with God. In fact, we are in his family. We are sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. You know, Satan's title, one of his titles is called the accuser. This is a scheme. This is one of the ways that Satan tries to beat down the church and Christians. He brings accusations about Christians. He reminds us of our failures. He burdens us with all of our failures and shortfallings. In fact, Revelations 12.10 says this, And I heard a voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of, of our brothers. That's Satan's title. Accuser of our brothers. Accuser of Christians. Has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. When we fail... Satan wants us to be burdened by our failure so that we're ineffective. So that we grow more and more like Christ. So that we don't serve and love others. So we don't get involved. But the gospel reminds us that we are at peace with God. 
gospel of peace. In fact, as I said, we are adopted into God's family. You know, I'm not perfect, but I love my child when he fails or when he's good. (laughs) When he rebels against me and when he's not. I love him despite those things. God is perfect and he loves us with the perfect love as sons and daughters. That's why the analogy of, of father and children is so perfect. You know what? That's how you should think of God if you're saved. Remind yourself of that. In fact, right, this is where the battle is. Our confidence should not be in our, our works. Our confidence when we, when, we face, when we face the enemy should not be in our worthiness. Our, our confidence should be in the love of God. His goodness, His mercy, His grace. Turn with me to Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31. I know we've gone over this passage a ton in the last few months, but that's been on purpose on my part. I personally have needed this passage the last few months. I feel like a church, we need to hear this over and over and over again. This is one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. And it starts in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 is one of my favorite bat- verses, arguably my favorite verse in all of Scripture. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let that settle in. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, we, we're not justified because of our own works. It's because of the works of Christ. So who's going to bring any charge against us? God's works are perfect. He's the one that justified. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. The right hand of God the Father reminding God, hey, I died for him. I died for her. I paid for that sin. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer nothing. (laughs) That's our confidence. That's our confidence. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or an election? That last one wasn't in there. To be honest, I mean, all the anxiety we have where our country's going, why? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. What's an election? I'm bold. If Biden's our next president, I'll pray for him. Pray God works on his heart, changes it. He's not the enemy. Flesh and blood's not the enemy. I'll pray for our president. If he leads us to destruction, to live as Christ, to die is gain. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conqueror. What is, what is that? That's, that's war language. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How are we conquerors? Through him who loved us, through God's love. That's where our confidence is. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. There's nothing. Listen, our failures cannot separate us from the love of God. God loves you despite your failures. In fact, because of the gospel, when God looks at you, you know what he sees? His son. His imputed righteousness covering us. He sees his son. Don't let Satan trick you. It's a lie. It's a lie that God's love is dependent on your worthiness of it. We need to put on the gospel of peace. How do we do that? 
I think it's important. Turn with me to First John five or First John chapter one verse five. How do we put on the gospel of peace? First John one five. It says this. This is the message we have heard from him, proclaimed to you. That God is light, that, that God is righteous, that God is holy. That's what light means, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no sin in God. There's no unrighteousness in God. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, while we walk in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? That's the gospel. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Listen, the first part of that that passage in verse 8, don't go hand in hand. Those are almost sound like opposites until you see verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, this is God, It's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin, and we will as Christians, when we sin, we should expose our sins to the light, in other words. Expose them and confess our sins and trust that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John Stott writes, Walking in the light means exposing our sins, and when we expose our sins, the only way forward is to cling to the cross. As Christians, we need the ongoing benefit of Jesus' atoning death. We, need, we also need to know and remember that all sin is covered. Look at 1 John 1, nine again. It says, if we confess our sins, he, that's God, is just, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That we're just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. When we went through First John and was studying First John, that word just just didn't seem right. right? It seemed out of place. Justice is not a word usually associated with forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Justice is usually a word, God's holy justice, associated with judgment, wrath, payment, punishment. But think about it. If Jesus has already paid for our sins, past, present, and future, meaning the penalty has already been paid for, then it would be unjust to make us pay for that sin. Look at verse 9. John is appealing to God's justice. Verse 9, he says he is faithful and just to forgive us. The price has already been paid. Listen, in 1 John 1, 9, God's justice is on the line. God's holiness is on the line. How much assurance does that bring? Your sins are paid for, and Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you, saying something like this, I have already paid for that sin. It would be unjust for you to, to, to not forgive them. That sin's paid for. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalms 103.11 says this, For as high as the heavens is above the earth. How high is that? It's infinite. It's ongoing. So great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. And verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Infinite. So far does... He remove our transgressions, our sins, our failures from us. So those are the three lives of Satan. The first one, God loves you because of your good works, or God loves me because of my good works. That's self-righteousness. That's not righteousness. That's prideful. It's fake righteousness. The second lie is this. God doesn't love me because I have failed. Well, we need to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace when when Satan attacks us with this lies. We are at peace with God because of the gospel. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Which leads us to the third lie of Satan. The third lie is this. Because of the gospel, 
sin really isn't that big of a deal then. God's going to forgive you anyway, so you might as well go out and live it up. And that's a lie. The first two lies lead to legalism. This lie leads to antinomialism. Against the law. It's a fancy word for anti-law. Against the law. It's sometimes called cheap grace. And it's a lie from Satan. And this is where the shield of faith comes in. Ephesians 1.16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And we'll talk about the shield of faith more next week and how to fight against that lie of Satan. But I want to end this morning by doing just a quick review of where we've been so far in Ephesians 6 when it comes to spiritual warfare and the armor of God. So if you would, just look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. And let's read through this quickly. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This is the overarching command of this whole entire passage, that we are called to be strong, but we're called to be strong in the Lord. We're called to strength. Uh, seek his strength, not strength that comes from in, but, but, but strength that comes from out, that, that, that's God's strength. And how do we do this? Verse 11, by put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? Our enemy is not people. I want to be clear on that. Our enemy is not people. It's not Muslims. Our enemy is not liberals. Our enemy is not homosexuals. Those are our mission field. We should be seeking them with the gospel of Christ and, and pleading with them and loving on them. Our enemy, our, our enemy is, is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is Satan and his army of, of demons. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand against the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, which is found in God's word. Truth is found in God's word. We need to know, read, hear, study the word, and having put in on the breast, or breastplate of righteousness, after studying, we need to be doers of the word. But when we fail, we need to put on the gospel of peace, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We are at peace with God because of the finished work of Christ, because of the gospel. We should be at rest because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We'll look at the shield of faith next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I pray that we take this portion of Scripture serious, Lord, the inspired word that you have given to us through the pen of Paul, Lord, to the church of Ephesus, Lord, that's made all of its way to hear to us, Lord, to hear about the armor of God. Help us to put on the armor of God, Lord. Help us to seek, seek after your strength by putting on the armor of God as we face evil days. Lord, it's going to be harder and harder to be a Christian in this culture. The culture is just listening to Satan's lies and his schemes. We need to stand firm by putting on the armor of God, Lord. I just pray that as a church we do that, that we, we seek truth, Lord, and that we don't just seek truth to be hearers, we seek truth to be doers, Lord. That we seek righteousness, Lord. First and foremost, through imputed righteousness, that we put our faith in your Son, knowing, knowing his righteousness put is put on us. It's accredited to our account, Lord. But even through that, we seek to be like your Son. We seek righteousness. We're knowing when we fail, that nothing can separate us from your love. That we're at peace with you, that we've been adopted into your family. Help us to have confidence in that, Lord, not our works. Be with us, Lord, in your Son's name.